0: Again, the URL is unchangedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marketing names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Why should you get an MCO Visa card from crypto.com? First, it's a beautiful metal card. You can top up the card with crypto and spend anywhere Visa is accepted. You also get up to 5% back on all spending. You know they'll pay for your Spotify and Netflix too. You'll love the unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates if you travel a lot. Today's guest is Kevin Kelly, macro strategist at Delphi Digital. Welcome, Kevin. I'm Sharon Moore. We've been through some pretty sobering weeks, both in terms of the coronavirus's impact on the economy and financial markets, but also uh, in terms of its impact on public health. Bitcoin was also affected, although it has not suffered anywhere near the same level of carnage. Let's first just get an overview of what happened in Q1. What did you see in the traditional financial markets and how did that impact Bitcoin as well?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the big kind of key themes that we've been watching, and and this kind of spills over from last year in 2019, was you saw this really big kind of run up uh, in financial markets across different asset classes. We kind of deemed it as the everything rally uh, from last year. And a lot of that was driven by this kind of pivot uh, by central banks to uh, more kind of dovish or accommodative monetary policies. And so that gave a bid to, as I mentioned, you know, asset prices kind of across the board. And you basically saw that entire uh, theme really Flipped on its head here in Q one. I mean, we just wrapped up Q one this week, um, and to be honest, it was it was nothing short of a bloodbath, especially towards the, the latter half. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, Bitcoin certainly had you know a pretty significant drawdown, but uh, it wasn't unique in that sense, and it certainly wasn't, uh, I don't think, isolated from a lot of the carnage that happened in traditional financial markets. Uh, if you think about you know, riskier asset classes like, uh, stocks use the, and use the S&P 500 as, as a, a U.S. benchmark. I mean, the S&P 500 fell, you know, a clean, a, a 20%, um, over the last, basically over the last month or so. And it's, it's, it's at one point was down, you know, almost 35% from its all-time high in, uh, mid to late February, right? So you saw some really, really drastic drawdowns. And, and part of the reason for that, um, and this kind of spills over into what happened to Bitcoin as well is that, there was a key catalyst in, uh, or turning point, I should say, in the severity or how how much the market was pricing in the severity of, you know, coronavirus and COVID-19. And from there, you saw this kind of uh, a, a transpire of, of uh, or spiral of events that caused, you know, a liquidity crisis across asset classes. And basically, you know, historically, when you have, you know, a liquidity crisis where people are basically just trying to get out and sell whatever it is they can, um, that has decent liquidity, oftentimes, you know, it, it, it gets to a a point where it doesn't really matter what the asset is that you're selling, right? So it could be stocks. Uh, eventually, we even saw you know, liquidity drive in the treasury market. You know, gold uh, had a bit of a drawdown. Bitcoin certainly had a big drawdown. So um, you know, we talk about Bitcoin being you know longer term and uncorrelated asset and things of that nature. But when it comes to you know, real kind of seismic liquidity events like that, uh, isn't something that necessarily you'd think Bitcoin or crypto um, would be immune to.
0: Yeah, although um, one thing in your analysis was that actually the impact on Bitcoin was less, I guess, than kind of – you know, the more traditional financial markets, one of the obvious comparisons would be crude oil was down to 66%, but even the S&P 500 was down 19% compared to Bitcoin, which was down 10%. So, so f- somehow the impact was muted. Um, but actually that leads me to my next question, which is that, you know, for years there's been this kind of conventional wisdom about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general, which is that in times of distress, you know, some portion of that population and, in, in, you know, whatever economy that is will turn to Bitcoin and push up demand for it in that particular region. Do you think that that theory is held true during the coronavirus pandemic?
1: I think it's too early to dismiss that theory um, to say that it hasn't come true. I mean, certainly the macro hedge argument has taken a lot of heat uh, just because of again that that large drawdown that we saw in Bitcoin alongside you know riskier asset classes. But at the same time, if you if you rewind the clock and you think back to you know what happened in the financial crisis two thousand eight two thousand nine, you actually saw gold as you know stock started to sell off. Gold itself, right, which has been you know deemed as uh, obviously a complement or comparison for Bitcoin, uh, but also has been you know a store of value. For for, for, for not only, you know. Hundreds of years, but thousands of years at this point, uh, you saw gold take a pretty solid drawdown as well. I mean, it fell more than 30% between, I think it was March of 2008 through October of that year. And so, and then gold uh, really outperformed, you know, risk assets coming out of, um, you know, that the global financial crisis. And so I think it's a little bit too early to, you know, pr- uh, pronounce that macro hedge argument um, as dead for Bitcoin. I think it depends on how it reacts and really comes out of uh, all, the, all the turmoil that we're seeing here. And a, a big part of that is what's going on in the kind of monetary and fiscal policy world um and the implications of that long term for for you know, hard, scarce assets, Bitcoin certainly um, being kind of a higher higher beta approach to, uh, to an asset like that. Um, but I think it's, again, yeah, too early to deem it necessarily dead uh, because, it, again, in a liquidity type crisis or a really severe down, downturn, um, initially, you know, you have selling pressure across the board and even something like gold isn't necessarily immune from that. So to think that Bitcoin would um, kind of uh, be negatively correlated in, in a time in which correlations across asset classes are all moving towards one, um, I think would be a little bit naive.
0: And you guys published a report. Um, and in the report, you mentioned the U.S. to, to drill. <laughs> God, I can't even talk. Two trillion dollar coronavirus <laughs> relief package. Um, and you talk about how it's going to double the deficit and how the government is relying on the U.S. dollar's status as the last global reserve currency. And you conclude, quote, the setup for broad based currency debasement is playing out in front of our eyes. So what effect do you think this will have on Bitcoin and the crypto markets?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. It's a theme we've certainly been been harping on, and doing a lot of work on recently. Um, if you kind of just take a step back and think about what the the core issue that's really facing the global economy right now, um, obviously you know COVID nineteen has certainly thrown a wrench um, into you know uh, uh, economic growth, and it's not to say the global economy wasn't vulnerable heading into this. Um, and I think coronavirus is going to get blamed for a lot of um, um, the recessionary fears right now, and it's certainly accelerated the downturn, but it's not necessarily the sole cause of it. But basically, if you if we kind of take a step back, at the core of all of this is really kind of a cash flow issue initially, because you've seen a massive uh, exogenous shock to revenue for companies, small businesses, right? Corporate America. Um, and it comes at a time in which the world was heavily indebted, right? And so a lot of these risks are starting to compound on one another. And what policymakers and lawmakers are really trying to do right now is is see if they can or, or trying their best to create this, this monetary and fiscal bridge all most, if they can, if they can bridge the gap between what's happening right now with all the global, you know, government shutdowns, uh, it's certainly happening here in the U.S. You and I sit in New York City. I mean, we've been on lockdown for for weeks now. Um, Is basically trying to build this bridge to get you know the, the global economy across to a time in which you know the, the global economy reopens or opens back up, and they're doing that by pumping you know literally trillions and trillions of dollars into the system. And so in the short term, obviously a lot of the focus right now is on, you know, just, just, uh, uh, supporting uh, employees, supporting small businesses, supporting corporate America, right? Really trying to just keep the economic engine uh, light on, I guess you could say. Um, but the long-term implications of that is that there's going to be a lot of money that's pumped into the system. And so, you know, you're, you're starting to hear a lot of arguments about if we do get through this and maybe things aren't necessarily as bad as as we think because policymakers reacted so quickly and we don't actually see, you know, the next Great Depression, well, what is that going to leave us with on the other end of this? And, and if you really do see demand come back and you see see a lot of businesses um, hopefully potentially even survive you know, the next, whether it's you know, one quarter, two quarters, or you know, the next 12 months. Hopefully, it's not that long. But hypothetically, if you do see businesses come out on the other side of this and demand does ramp back up uh, relatively quickly, um, you certainly could see inflationary pressure start to build. And that's where you start to get you know, this long-term bull case for um, things like you know, Bitcoin, crypto assets, but even you know, precious metals like gold.
0: Yeah. Well, one other thing that I wanted to ask about was, um, you know, unfortunately, this is just such a sad statistic, but these historic jobless claims, you know, reaching $10 million or 10 million. See, I, I, you guys, my brain, <laughs> I like, I had a terrible dream about coronavirus and I just feel like this is on my brain. But anyway, um, 10 million claims and, you know, that's obviously eclipsed all previous periods of high unemployment. And while obviously, you know, we, don't know i mean it just in terms of bitcoin's history so far we don't know if there's a correlation between unemployment and bitcoin because that number's so staggering i just wonder if there are going to be ripple effects how do you think that will play out
1: yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's absolutely staggering. And again, you know, it's it's what's difficult too, taking a step back and looking at markets is a number like today, I mean, it's over six and a half million in terms of initial jobless claims. I mean, that's a number most people never thought they would see or never hoped that they would see, obviously. And it, it certainly was even higher than a lot of the um, highest uh, uh economists' expectations, right? So it really did surpass a lot of what people thought was already gonna be a really high number. And I think in the in the in the short to intermediate term, um actually you could potentially have a negative correlation just because 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 again, if you think about, you know, Right now, the 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 core issue that a lot of people are facing in terms of household income and really just kind of trying to keep their head above water, right? It's not a time in which you're putting, you know, potentially excess cash or um, um, you know some of that income into you know the markets or into something like Bitcoin. Again, long term, certainly believe in the store value uh, argument for it. But right now, you know, at the current juncture and where Bitcoin and crypto as an asset class really sits, um, I don't think you're necessarily going to see you know people getting, you know, unemployment uh, benefits and then rolling some of that money into something like Bitcoin, just because again, they're just trying to keep the lights on, trying to keep their head above water. What I think the longer term, we'll call it maybe more indirect impact from something like jobless claims would be how does that affect the policy response to what's going on in the global economy? And again, this isn't just a U.S. issue, obviously, it's a global issue. As you see, you know, global central banks and, and country leaders and lawmakers come out and increase. I mean, I don't think we're, we're really close to uh, the, the end game in terms of what the stimulus packages are actually going to look like here in the U.S. You mentioned we already had that $2 trillion uh, stimulus package that was passed, but that's uh, already being talked about uh, uh, adding on top of that because, again, small businesses are, are really starting to struggle and haven't gotten that money flowing into their pockets yet. I think the policy responses to, you know, numbers like the jobless claims are going to uh, long term be kind of the more indirect uh, effects on, you you know, Bitcoin, crypto, and, and other asset classes. And in the short run, you know, as the situation gets worse, it's not necessarily something that would be uh, uh, in the short term good for, good for Bitcoin or Bitcoin's price.
0: So in a moment, we're going to dive into more details on Bitcoin's price, as well as like who's been selling. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Why should you get an MCO Visa card from crypto.com? First, it's a beautiful metal card. You can top up the card with crypto and spend anywhere Visa is accepted. You also get up to 5% back on all spending. You know they'll pay for your Spotify and Netflix, too. You'll love the unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates if you travel a lot. There are so many cool perks loaded in one card. Download the Crypto.com app now. Back to my conversation with Kevin Kelly. Your firm put out reports with comprehensive analyses of some of the different factors affecting the Bitcoin price, such as the technical analysis and looking at some of the crypto-specific metrics like Bitcoin's network value to transaction signal. What did you find from these different analyses that you've done? And when you explain that, if you could also define any terms listeners may not know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So one of the things that we do uh, pretty regularly is update our, our UTXO analysis, which um, basically is the unspent transaction outputs. And, and for Bitcoin, what that allows us to do is basically see the last time you know Bitcoin was moved and, and what the associated price was. And you can create a lot of these really interesting and, and potentially useful metrics that you just mentioned. Um, and so one of the things we'll look at is trying to define you know who the types of of, of holders or or sellers would be uh, during a period in which you see you know pretty volatile prices. Movement and so, for example, if you look at our, our most recent outlook and look at the uh, UTXO uh, age bands, right? So we break those out in terms of how long it's been since Bitcoin's moved, and the, the, the percentage or the amount that hasn't moved in that that associated period of time. Um, you see that a lot of this this uh, uh, recent trading activity and recent selling pressure has come from uh, more kind of short term holders, right? So, so not your longer term uh, uh, holders that um, you would potentially see, like we saw back in. 2018, you saw that kind of final leg of capitulation where you had long-term holders sell out, and that kind of gave us a, an idea of where a potential bottom would be. And that's why we came out with our December 2018 report talking about how we thought a bottom was going to be in for Bitcoin because you were starting to see signs of capitulation. What we're seeing now is a lot of this has been short-term holder-driven. Um, and it is a, an interesting sign because we, we pair things like that with looking at Bitcoin exchange flows, for example, and seeing that a lot of Bitcoin, we not only had some, uh, a significant amount of stablecoin inflows into exchanges, but also there was a good amount of Bitcoin that was taken off exchange, right? So we would think that, you no know, longer term, these are people who are basically, you know, going in buying Bitcoin and and trying to store it longer term because, again, they're, they're bullish on it. They think um, this could actually serve as a store of value during a time in which, as you mentioned, we have that rising risk of fiat currency debasement. And so we'll take a look at a lot of these different metrics and. and To be honest, what's kind of fascinating to me about the crypto space and Bitcoin specifically is, you know, the underlying blockchain and the transparency of it. You're able to create these really interesting metrics and track them, you know, pretty much in real time at this point um, that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise, uh, you know, in other asset classes. I come uh, from the from the equity world, from the stock market world, and you don't have things like, you know, UTXOs to be able to track, uh, uh, you know, buying and selling uh, or holder uh, position trends and things of that nature. So it's, it's really interesting. Um, obviously, if, if anybody's more curious about that, certainly reach out to us. But uh, I think that's one of the the, the the cooler aspects of crypto and being an analyst in this space is always trying to kind of deviate or, or come up with different variations of these metrics um, to see if they, they have any, you know, uh, leading signals.
0: And so what do you think the impact of the coronavirus and the economic fallout will be on Bitcoin at the time of the halving? Are you noticing any effects, um, you know, on Bitcoin mining at the moment that would give us f- uh, further insight into what might happen at that time?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a really good question and one that's obviously um, highly debated. And to be quite frank, I think the momentum or the trend in which Bitcoin's price is going um, is going to be is going to help dictate how the immediate kind of price reaction is uh, following the halving, right? And I, I think what's interesting is. You know, right now we've actually seen, at least this morning, Bitcoin started to catch a bit of a bid. Uh last time I checked, I think it was at sixty nine hundred close to uh to a to a kind of key technical level and seven thousand. And if you started to see Bitcoin, let's say, move back towards 10K, um, as you start to see again more and more talk about um the having what the potential uh, long-term effects of that will be with the uh the supply decrease, I think the momentum heading into it is certainly gonna be you know one of the, the catalysts that helps uh dictate at least in the short to intermediate term how price is affected. But long term, I mean, certainly a a, a bullish, um, Event or indicator, um, because again, a lot of the uh, crux of the argument for Bitcoin being digital gold or a store of value long term is that you know hard cap supply, right? And, and and really, when you talk about you know a non-sovereign, digitally native, um, you know censorship resistant asset, uh, Bitcoin certainly you know obviously fits all of those and is an asset that uh, this world simply hasn't seen yet, right? So I think it'll, it'll at the very least draw more attention to what's happening, even on the day that, that the having occurs, um, it'll just. Draw Drive news flow, it'll drive uh, more attention and awareness about what's going on in Bitcoin at a time in which, you know, you're seeing a lot of macro people really wake up to uh, this, this risk of broad based fiat currency debasement. And they're now on the prowl and really searching for, you know, what is that asset that's, again, potentially non-sovereign and, and wouldn't uh, would potentially benefit from um, um, a macro environment like that?
0: So let's now switch gears and discuss Maker because that, uh, well, DeFi in general was obviously in the news in a big way because of uh, the coronavirus impact. And your colleague, Medio DeMarco published a report advocating that Maker not use token burns as the only tool in its arsenal and that it should keep tokens in reserve. Can you walk us through his argument and, um, you know, what he's saying and why he's saying it?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. He's uh he's certainly the the go to expert on our team for for uh for this topic area for sure. He's done a lot of work on it, and I think he he brings up some really interesting points, and he tries to relate it back to uh, honestly kind of something that's going on in the stock market right now. When you talk about you know the level of cash positions on on company balance sheets and buybacks, and there's obviously a huge argument about whether or not some of these companies should be bailed out um, or should be uh, uh, able to get relief funding because they've spent you know a, a lot of their cash on buybacks. Over the last, you know, five years, ten years, basically, his his proposal when he walks through is talking about increasing kind of the optionality uh, uh, for the Dow itself and potentially reducing the amount of fee revenue that that automatically gets burned um, and proposing that essentially having it uh, uh, pooled instead on on the Dows balance sheet uh, because this would give it more optionality it could sit on cash you could invest it uh, pay debts uh, use it to buy back va- uh, uh, for for buybacks things of that nature essentially retaining kind of more earnings within the system um, and he even, you know, goes on to propose that eventually that pool, f- pool of fee revenue could be uh, using other DeFi applications, lent out, could could increase the yield of that balance sheet. And basically, the greater the surplus, the more confidence people potentially would have in the stability of the system. And as a re- as it relates or as a corollary, uh, would have more uh, confidence in the stability of something like Dai, right? And so he does a couple comparisons in terms of looking at total cumulative Maker revenue um, so far. Which is just under eight million, uh, relative to what that shortfall was based on uh, Black Thursday, as you were mentioning, and just again outlining some some um, potential uh, situations in which you know pooling some of this fee revenue um, and creating basically having Maker create a balance sheet um, and and, and uh, taking advantage of some of these surpluses, especially when times are good, um, would help to uh, make it a more resilient system when it faces you know really true um, I want to say call it you know Black Swan type events, um, but but really. High risk, uh, low probability events like we saw, you know, a couple weeks ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a really well argued um, report, and we'll see if any of the maker team finds it um, convincing or persuasive in any way. (laughs) Um, Well, it's been so great having you on the show, and um, thanks for coming on unconfirmed. And I hope you and all your friends and family stay safe and healthy.
1: Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, stay, uh, stay, stay, stay healthy out there.
0: Don't forget, next up is the news recap. Hey everyone, I hope you're all safe and healthy. And I hope that when you have a choice, you are all staying at home and maybe doing internet-y things like playing with digital currencies. Here are this week's top crypto headlines. First headline, Binance acquires CoinMarketCap. market cap. May change business model. In the biggest acquisition in the crypto space, Crypto exchange Binance acquired CoinMarketCap, which saw 207 million visitors in the last six months. The deal, a mix of equity and the BNB token, was valued at between 300 and $400 million. The block, which broke the news, also reported, quote, several employees at Binance told the block that the firm was considering a significant change in CoinMarketCap's business model, shifting away from an ad-based model to a subscription model, which will charge exchanges to be included on the site. Additionally, founder and CEO Brandon Chez is stepping down while CSO Carolyn Chan is now acting CEO. Coindesk had a great analysis on the acquisition with Andy Chung, former chief operating officer at OKX and founder of crypto derivative platform ACDX, questioning the deal due to the conflict of interest between Binance and CoinMarketCap. He said, quote, I can understand the business or potential profit, but honestly, how are you going to convince people that the rankings and volume are true when you're operating an exchange and also probably the biggest holder of BNB? Others pointed out that rival exchanges may be less willing to give coin market cap data. Nomix founder and CEO Clay Collins said, quote, that data is now being given to a competitor with surveillance abilities. It's unlikely that other exchanges will want to see Binance aggregating and monetizing their own data. Next headline. Crypto startups struggle amidst pandemic uncertainty. The block reports that crypto startups are being affected by the broader economic slowdown. Chris Maurice, the CEO of an early stage crypto startup called Yellow Card, said quote. Within the past week and a half, we have three VCs that pretty much we are in final stage of due diligence with come back and say, look, it's not you, but we are not deploying capital within six months, given what just happened in the market. The timing of the coronavirus is especially significant since 2018 was the year a lot of startups got initial funding. According to PitchBook, 88% of all funding rounds from 2017 to 2019 of less than $5 million closed in 2018 and 2019 and have had no follow up rounds. One sector that's been particularly badly hit is DeFi because it lacks an obvious path to profitability. Next headline. Riot Blockchain's filing shows how coronavirus could impact Bitcoin miners. In a 10K filing with the SEC, NASDAQ-listed Riot Blockchain said it is having difficulty mining because its workers are being quarantined. Plus, its access to mining equipment has been disrupted due to factory closures and border restrictions. On top of all that, it is categorized as a non-essential business, which could make the company unable to service its miners. Similarly, in February, Chinese mining farms had limited available staff to run miners. On a somewhat related note, Microsoft filed a patent for crypto mining based on human activity, which... Wouldn't that be awesome if we could just mine digital currency and not contribute to climate change and do all that while we're running or swimming or dancing or doing yoga or whatever it is we like to do? Next headline, quest to bring Bitcoin to Ethereum garners 7.7 million dollars. I think the whole Bitcoin-Ethereum cultural split has outlived its usefulness, says Matt Luongo, the founder of Thesis, which is behind a trustless version of Bitcoin that is being developed for Ethereum and has raised $7.7 million from Paradigm and Fanbushi Capital, among others, for that effort. While a version of Bitcoin called Wrapped Bitcoin does exist on Ethereum, it is custodied by Bitco. Coindesk reports that on the other hand, quote, to mint one TBTC, a user contacts the KEEP network, which designates a wallet for storing the Bitcoin. The keys for that wallet are held in a multi-sig structure across several nodes on the KEEP network that have staked KEEP tokens. Bloomberg writes that on Ethereum, TBTC could be used as, quote, collateral to earn interest, trade using leverage, or access enhanced fibr- financial privacy applications, all without having to sell their Bitcoin. Next headline, the effect of zero interest rates on stablecoins. Coindesk columnist J.P. Koning wrote this week that with U.S. interest rates collapsing to zero, the stablecoin industry could find itself in a tough spot. He writes, quote, Here's a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation. Most stablecoins are based on the U.S. dollar. At the end of July 2019, U.S. Treasury bill rates were at 2.5%. The total number of stablecoins in existence summed up to around $5 billion at that time. Assuming the issuers invested $4 billion of their customer funds in T-bills and kept $1 billion in liquid, no interest accounts, that comes to, uh, that comes out to around $100 million in expected interest income at the end of July. But now that $100 million has evaporated to zero. He surmises that issuers may introduce fees such as making wallet-to-wallet stablecoin payments or putting slightly negative interest rates on stablecoin balances. We'll see how that plays out. Next headline, returns of 1,300% at Polychain. Coindesk got a look at an investor document for the first four years of Polychain Capital's cryptocurrency hedge fund. Anyone who had stuck with the firm throughout that time would have enjoyed gains of 1,332%, while year-to-year returns varied from a 3% loss in 2016 to a 2,279% gain in 2017. I'm sure we all remember that year, 2017. In 2018, the fund saw a 60% loss and then a 56% gain in 2019. According to the Bloomberg All-Hedge Fund Index, Non-cryptocurrency hedge funds gained 4% in 2016, 9% in 2017, lost 6% in 2018, and gained 4% in 2019. Fun bits! Caitlin Long's journey to Avanti Bank. Michael Del Castillo of Forbes, shout out to Michael, wrote up a great feature on Caitlin Long and Avanti Bank, which is set to launch next year. In the piece, he explains how it will make money not by lending, but by charging fees for services and custodying securities issued on a blockchain. Long told Forbes, quote, there are eight products we've identified that Avanti will be able to offer that do not exist in the marketplace today, precisely because traditional banks can't custody crypto and trust companies don't have access to the Fed directly. Former Bitcoin Core developer and chief technology officer Brian Bishop also says that the bank would, quote, give customers access to their private keys, even while the bank maintained some responsibility for the funds. Plus, he's worked on a Bitcoin vault that has a clawback mechanism that makes it easier to obtain stolen Bitcoins. It's worth checking out the full article for all the great details, but also because it features some great photos of Caitlin in Wyoming, and also a photo of her in Utah with a baby bison. All right. Thanks for tuning in to learn more about Kevin and Delphi digital. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoy these news recaps, then why not sign up for the real deal? The weekly newsletter I publish every Friday. Some of you have asked me for the links to the stories I mentioned on the show, and now you can get them delivered right to your inbox. Go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to sign up. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factual Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.